next growth strategies podcast i'm your host aarti vijayaraghavan a product leader avid reader and a book lover today we'll be discussing the book thinking fast and slow by daniel kahneman with our guest mr vt bharadwaj the book is by a nobel prize winner for economics and the book explores engaging collections of insights into the human mind decision making and helps us know how and why the choices we make Our guest today Mr VT Bharadwaj is a general partner at A91 Partners previously he was a managing director at Sequoia Capital India where he led numerous investments across food services healthcare and various other industries prior to that he was with McKinsey and Company as well he's an alumnus of IIM Ahmedabad and Bitspilani two premier institutes in India great to have you VT and thank you for coming to the show i hope i can call you VT Yes, thank you. Thank okay. you Art. Yeah. You go by VT, right? In the investment yes, circle? Yes, I do. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. I know I did a brief introduction about you and your career. Like can you introduce yourself and, you know, how what got you into investing in the first place? Yeah. So I started my career actually consulting uh which was in McKinsey in India and uh, that and i was serving a large number of clients across multiple sectors but very old world sectors oil and gas chemicals etc and my entry into investing was absolutely an accident uh, i just happened to get a call from a ex mckinsey person who was also an ex i am of the bad colleague uh, saying there was a uh, opportunity at sequoia capital and um, and would you like to consider and uh, and that's how i stumbled my way into investing in 2007 uh, it was a complete accident it was of course a happy accident in hindsight uh but the first few years obviously were very challenging because uh investing is a very different business uh from consulting uh but uh, but yeah over a period of time i managed to work with some great colleagues and learn from them and that was between 2007 and 2018 and then by 18 uh, me and my partners were confident enough to think about uh, starting something on our own uh doing exactly what we had learned uh, uh in the last in the te- prior 10 years between 2007 to 18 so private investing is what i've been now doing for 15 years i really enjoy it and and that is what uh, we decided to build up around nice 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 great to hear that so uh one thing what made you choose this book actually like i love the book because it's obviously a lot of theoretical insights and sociological experiments so what is the reason for you to pick this book it's a heavy academic book by the way <laughs> <laughs> no it is a very important book i feel especially in the context of private investing uh especially because it is absolutely true i think for the longest times in both public markets and especially private markets there is this desire to think that you know things happen in a very efficient and a rational basis and i think one of the powerful things about this book is that it has numerous practical insights which are extremely helpful on a day to day basis for an investor you know while for a casual reader it is interesting from a maybe making a few decisions in their life or maybe making a few decisions over the course of their job i think in investing what you realize is that daniel kahneman he gets it absolutely back on uh in terms of both uh how we decide uh, you know what goes inside our head when we make these decisions uh, the pulls and pushes of system 1 and system 2 and also finally every trick that really smart investment bankers founders used with us uh, uh you know to get what they want and 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 literally one of, and therefore to me the reason this book while it's an academic book is a very very practical book 
for anyone who ever wants to do investing and certainly private investing because a lot of the things that he describes in the book are absolutely true and 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 i found my way to this book very strangely by reading a few other more you know minor works by other by, by other economists and then you realize that you know this is really the the source of all 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 those insights and that's what on this book and you know i really love this book and uh, and that's the context for picking this book for today nice thank you yeah so as i think you touched upon it already right so obviously the most important theory in the book is system 1 and 2 i i think of it like you know the our uh, real uh, thing one and thing two from uh, from the from the like what do you say uh, i'm not able to get the word thing one and thing two uh, from the cartoons which the kids reads right so like system one obviously is fast and intuitive and system two is slow lazy a bit analytical or lots analytical so what's your take on these systems and how do you use like you know you mentioned about how it is very practical applications in in your investing strategy so maybe a couple of examples and what do you typically use one and two for no it's fascinating so system one is as he says the reptilian brain right which is basically intuitive it tries to quickly summarize based on whatever data is available at that point of time and then comes to a conclusion and system 2 is the one where you're a bit more analytical you're looking for data and you have to really get the system 2 to work uh, otherwise the one is very happy to take the call and make the decision and move forward and i think one of the learnings we have in investing is that i would say for me as a practically is that they're both are important you know system 1 is i walk into a meeting and i meet a founder and you know system 1 uh, you know, sometimes you can feel the excitement you can see that there is an interesting narrative that has been spun by the founder or an interesting thing that is happening in the company right? and and your instincts basically based on all the other it's a pattern recognition you're saying hey you know what i have met this kind of a founder before i have met this kind of a team before i've met this kind of a neighborhood or a business idea before and you get very excited and 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 that is for example for me the advantage of system one it gives you a good sense similarly for example things that don't add up you know a founder who is who's not been very uh, uh, very candid a founder who is hiding things a founder who's not saying everything that is to be said about the business a founder who's not very frank uh, uh, you know somebody who's only talking about the good things that are happening in the business and not talking about the things that are not working well or not talking about the hardships along the way uh, you know a founder who says he's frugal but you know but is driving a you know a bmw even though it's a early startup which is losing money so you know that's all system one system one is capturing some of that and sometimes telling you you know what you know he's saying a lot of things but you know make sure are you sure you can trust this person so system one actually is both ways i think in for me it's something that helps me develop sometimes a point a positive point of view and saying hey you know what i want to spend more time with this company more time with this founder or you know what everything something is not adding up and that is something that system one is what usually is telling because it's not the data sometimes you may have to find the data for to support it but system one is also telling you you know what i'm not sure i really want to trust this person with uh, with our capital system 2 is the more conventional you know investing analysis right that's where you say you look for data that's the one where you requesting you know what i want i want to know what the business is up to what has happened so far and you're looking to see if what the person is saying in terms of what they said in the story is adding up in terms of what the data is so system 2 goes down the process yeah. that's the one really saying you know what let's get the data let's not be sure you're very excited or you know sometimes also like you may have a very negative point of view to start with but actually the data is much better than what you thought um and therefore you ought to pay uh, you know serious attention to it so i think system 2 is about that it's a more conventional part about investing it's a part where you're forced to look at the data ask for the right data 
and and then from a point of view but i think the this is in terms of both a, a first of all formulating the point of view right which is the first part of investing saying hey do i want to invest or not then there is a second stage which is like really making the deal happen where mm-hmm. again the one and system two are in, in the stage of conflict right system one can actually sense the excitement of closing the deal you know uh, i always know my system one is an operational when i can see that my breath is going fast i'm getting excited we want to close the deal we want to make it happen system 2 is the one which is saying you know what these deal terms make sense these don't make sense so please make sure that you draw the line right and yeah. and and because the negotiation of the founder the founder is assessing saying you know how excited are these guys and if they're very excited you know can i get more or do i need to give give more and and so that again is the combination right system but system 1 is what gets the excitement around system 1 is the one where you start using emotional methods literally emotional ways to say you know what hey you know we really want to do business with you why don't you work with us and why don't you team up with us and system 2 is the one which has been rational making sure that the deal structure makes sense for us so that's the two parts of any investment right just both the formulation side which is saying formulating a view saying do i want to make an investment and second is actually consummating the investment saying you know making it happen and it's very interesting for me because you know both 1 and 2 are constantly in operation and i think over a period of time my learning and maturing has been in investors to really spot the moments when i can see you know one working harder than the other and then making sure that both work hard <laughs> so in terms of obviously investing is 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 this a group activity in your organization or is it like how many people are at least involved in some investing decision you and another partner or multiple partners because you know do you guys have this conversation in your organization as well saying like hey you know i don't think we are making the rational decision here it's it's being too quick or intuitive and then or we are not looking for the you know for the blind sides so if you will, yeah. so how do you how do you use that in your in a team kind of a structure actually so philosophically i think of investment as a a small group partnership decision making process uh it can't one person because of exactly what you said which is you know you don't want one person's intuition triumphing over data that may be often visible to others sometimes or sometimes may need may become visible to that same person once he's prodded and asked uh, you know and pushed to answer more questions uh it's a partnership structure so we are actually three partners and we are the investment committee who decide on making an investment or not and and therefore you're absolutely right a lot of it is about bringing all the data and the intuition to the partnership and then sharing and discussing it and then kind of developing a view because we are relying on each other's intuition we are also relying on each other's pushing and prodding on data and questions and sometimes we are relying on our partners to see things which we are just not able to see yeah. right i also most important value of a partnership right sometimes where you're able to say you know what i'm very excited i can't see why we should not make this investment but you are seeing something and that's mm-hmm. valuable and yeah. therefore i just trust your instincts uh, and therefore i will not make this investment so i think it's a small partnership structure it's a small investment team first of all we have an investment team of only six people uh, you know and we have uh, a team of six analysts so it's really a team of 12 people who all sit together to make our investment decisions uh, and to do our investment work but in terms of applying the judgment yeah it's 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 a smaller team uh, uh, which which kind of puts together the data shares the data uh, in the form of a memo and then we reflect on it one of the things that we also do actually given the stage at which we invest in which relatively early we don't uh, we don't invest super early but we also don't invest very late we invest in a company where 
typically 10 million of revenue, some product market fit has been established and really back those founders to build large businesses. And that's our thesis. We often get the founders to come in and present, uh, not just to one partner, but to multiple partners. Because that also is helpful. Because sometimes the that you are having about a founder may be different from what somebody else gets out of the exactly the same meeting. Yeah. Right. Uh, uh, because you have your biases on things that you like about a founder and there are other people who are react very differently to those same, to those same stimuli. Um, so we do that as well. So that's the part where you get the founder to present to a partnership group and therefore multiple people are able to build intuition around the person. And of course, there is a data around the business which is shared and put together by the larger team. And then again, you know, we take a call on whether it makes sense or not. Nice. Makes sense. Does, does that answer the question? Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. Like I, I was curious on figuring out whether in your team you guys have conversations. I'm like, you know, my system one is selling me something, but I do, I think you are doing something. But to do that in a in a systematic way with the analysis and also uh, doing a partnership, sorry, a team-based decision and analysis, yeah. That is one of the things we have realized over a period of time is that, you know, to, to really get the best in decision making, and I think Daniel Kahneman makes this point somewhere, you need a group of people who are absolutely are able to trust each other and are able to be extremely honest with each other, which is the reason why we make the decision group very, very small. Because at that time, you want to be, you want to be able to air your frank views, right? Because that's when a good decision can happen. Yeah, yeah, that 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 makes total sense actually. So, like having that whole trust built into the team and the long running, uh, you know, long running partnership also makes a difference actually. So, one more thing you touched on, right? Sorry, uh, one more thing you touched on was like, uh, you know, when the investment decision is made, you kind of uh, were trying to anchor on an effect. Like say, for example, if you are too uh, too happy with the company and you want to really invest. Or if the if the you know if the founder sense that you're happy, they might want to anchor you on a percentage of equity or a percentage of investment or a number, right? So like plans are best case scenarios. So how do you kind of uh, you know judge between plans and what is the potential of the company and how much do you want to actually invest in it? Because that's that's kind of a number thing, and typically a lot of people play that anchoring effect. They want to ask you for a number which either is too much or too little to see how much you will go, right? Uh, I think anchoring is a very important thing. And therefore, one of the things that we try very hard to do is to have a bottom-up view on what is the value that we want to pay for a, in an investment and how much we want to invest. And 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 the, it, it, is, it, is, it is kind of straightforward. So, for example, our first fund was a... Uh, uh, a second fund is a $550 million fund. And therefore, we try to typically make investments between 10 and 40 million, which means, let's say, median investment of 25 million. So the question that we ask ourselves is for an investment to be meaningful for the fund, you know, each 25 million should ideally give at least 125. You know, mm -hmm. otherwise, I'd be making the investment in the context of a $550 million fund, which is to return, let's say, 2 billion or 2.5 billion over 10 years. So the first question, therefore, so for us is we say, you know, how much, how much is the money? So we, we are very candid. We tell founders, hey, for us, for us, for it to make sense for us, let's say we need to invest between 20 and 25 or 30 million. Second is we ask the question, uh, a bottom up saying, hey, what are the, at what price do we think we have a real shot at making a 5X with optionality, we call it. Optionality is a part where many, many good things happen. And yeah. then therefore, you real chance that this becomes a, you know, a multi, a big multiple on the investment. But we ask the question saying, hey, look, what are the chances that we lose money in a company? What are the chances that we think we will, you know, make, uh, you know, four or five times our money, right? And we try very hard to have the, a bottom-up view on that and say, you know, therefore, this is where we are. 
right? Because otherwise, to your point, Arti, when if you let, if it otherwise it becomes a completely an anchoring conversation where people are saying, you know, it's like then it becomes like you know tomato with an onion, right? You're purchasing, right? You're saying, look, it's not about that. You're saying, if I want to make five x, is where I think now. Obviously, you know, there's always a plus minus twenty percent on it because practically speaking, that that we don't know. There's so much uncertainty, right? Uh, and that extent, you know, negotiation is possible. But sometimes you see founders are very far away, in which case it's an easy conversation. And the harder conversations where, where you're at X and the person is maybe X plus 20% and you're figuring out, you know, can you move up 20% or is can you move up only 10%? Like recently, there was a situation like that where, you know, uh, you know, we were at, uh, I think, 2,000 crores. So, give or take, it's like maybe $250 million. And, uh, and we could not move up because genuinely that was absolutely the top price that we were willing to you know, invest in and the expectation was maybe 300. Now, while optically, it looks like only 20%. We just could never kind of make that move uh, because get there. So I think some of it is, some of it is that. Some of it is also negotiation style and the reputations that you build. Um, you know, as a person, I've tried to build a reputation of saying somebody who gives the best price and then walks away because it just, I feel it makes, keeps my life very efficient. So that everyone knows, right? And, you know, innovation bankers know, the ecosystem knows that, you know, if, if some, if, if VD is saying X, you know, maybe there's some 5% flexibility, but honestly, there isn't much beyond that. Which is some people like this negotiation process. And, you know, each, it, it's perfectly fine. But what happens over a period of time in the investing world is you do develop a reputation as to what kind of a person you are and how you negotiate. And, and, and then you can choose which style you want to be. Do you want to be the person who says, you know, I'm at X. If it's, we are there, we are there. We're not there. Thank you very much. Or are you the person who kind of moves around? And both are okay, as long as it works for you as a person. Yeah, and as long as you have a, a structured decision making and philosophy around that, if I, if I could, yeah. So one one more thing, obviously, the book is interesting, amazing experiments all over the place. So anything which you found very surprising, like your own bias or stereotype, which which you changed after reading the book, or anything was a cautionary tale which you use saying, okay, if I see this, I know it's a caution for me, and I don't want to get trapped into this bias. <laughs> Uh, let me tell what two two examples of one of each. Uh, the first one, I'll give you a very simple change that we made many years ago when I read this book, and we still do that. Our investment decision making process typically starts at half past ten or ten o'clock, and typically it goes on to lunch. And one of the things that we've started doing after I read Daniel Kahneman was you always serve food during the decision making process. Okay. So we ask coffee at around eleven eleven thirty. You typically will see fruits show up or yogurt show up. Because one of the things, and, and he talks about the experiment, right? How when you are not well-fed, yeah. uh, uh, because one, and you know you can sometimes either accelerate or you make a wrong decision or a harsher decision simply because you're hungry, right? Yeah. So we actually, and I have you know done that consistently in our office on Tuesday. If you come at eleven thirty, you actually will get a almost a mini breakfast uh, uh, because it's in the middle of the investment decision-making process, and we want to make sure people are well-fed. Uh, uh, when they are making the decision, we think it is of value. There is value in it, and I think he is—he is absolutely onto something. You know, that's an example of a, a small one. A meaningful one is, I would say, this book has made me very cautious of two kinds of both people as well as uh, you know pro processes. One is anybody who believes in 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 the expectation that people are too rational. Uh, I think I'm nervous because I do, because the one of the things this book teaches you is how human we all are. And therefore, it's kind of a folly to think that, you know, human beings are going to be, uh, uh, you know, ultra rational in all the decision making. It is simply not true. It is not an observed fact. And therefore, it's not a surprise at all that even when they make, 
economic decisions. Uh, uh, you know, people are not rational, and, and that's true actually. Their founders will go out of their way. Uh, uh, you know, in in even and and you'll find it strange as to why are they pushing themselves so much to make sure that they do the right thing by you and by themselves, and then there are founders who are very commercial and will not do it. So you you kind all kind of get all kinds of people. The second, I've become very cautious of our master storytellers, and the people who make me the most nervous are founders who can spin phenomenal stories, uh, especially in the context. Uh, you, uh, it's not that it doesn't mean that we don't like them. It's not that we don't partner with such founders. It's just that we are more cautious. Therefore, we look for more data because we know that for somebody who it, if for somebody, if narrative and storytelling comes so naturally, we know that we have to kind of dig more to make sure that the data supports the narrative. Uh, uh, because our experience and no investment, successful or unsuccessful, is ever a simple narrative. It's a series of complex forces. And sometimes you make a good outcome because of sheer dumb luck, and sometimes you make a bad outcome because you just got plain unlucky. Uh, you know, you might have done all the right things, and the founder would have done all the right things, and 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 that is an example. And and you still, you know, may end up with a very mediocre outcome. And but that's life. And and one of the things you have to realize, and as Kahneman tells you, is you know that is that is there is chance and there is uncertainty, right? And you deal with it. You don't like you, you say that's fine. You know, that's a part of the game. A third example I wanted to give you uh, from Daniel Khan, which I think is 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 really. Uh, and it's a practical implication also, like, you know, for example, in investing, you know, one of the things that investors do, and I don't want to make it very technical, but there are investors who sign up for convert deals, which basically means, you know what, let's say you and I can't agree on a price today. Uh, and then we say, you know what, if you hit an X milestone, this will be the price. If you hit a Y milestone, this will be the price. Mm -hmm. 12 months from. And many people in my industry do that. Right. Uh, and because they say, you know what, what's the big deal? You know, six months, one year, you're just agreeing to a performance based milestone, milestone yeah. based value. I'm super nervous about that. I never do it. And we never do it as a firm anymore because we have actually seen situations where even though it is bad in the long term, you know, founders optimize for the short term. And, and to me, that's about what Daniel Kahneman talks about. Right? I think we do value the or whatever he calls it when there is a more certainty around a fruit or an outcome in the near term, we do value it more than a larger price at the end of more number of years. And, and, and that's the reality, right? We do, we do do that and humans do that. And therefore, one of the things we notice is that when you do a convert deal, first of all, you and the founder are on the opposite side of the table till the convert deal is done. And yeah. actually, are, how much ever you think, you are actually on the opposite side of the table because that's human nature. And second is, you know, people do a lot of silly, stupid things. Uh, uh, that's been our consistent finding over a period of time because people optimize for the short term. And therefore, you don't want to create incentive structures which encourages people to optimize in the short term because then people do it because it is absolutely in their interest to do it. And yeah, they're not... Because you have that, uh, say, X million dollars you're going to gain after one or two years of hitting a particular milestone. You optimize your business process around it and then you unlock the money and you don't know, maybe the product market fit itself might have changed, right? Because Absolutely. of your optimizations. And people don't say, you know what, there may be a 10x price later at the end of five years, but people optimize. And I think that's something that we've learned. And to our, uh, even though it is very irrational, right? Even though it's very irrational. I've actually seen a case where a founder literally almost destroyed the business in the process of doing that. And 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 it's very funny uh, why you would do that. But that's that's how human nature works. Yeah, yeah. But actually, that is an amazing example. I think what you took away from it, uh, I'll come to the come to your office for Tuesday lunch. I hope it's good spread of lunch. 
And I think it makes sense. I, I think it was in this book or some other reference where judges make harsher decisions around lunchtime and and that really screws up people's lives actually so which is which is unfortunate parole parole uh, israeli paroles i think something yes. like that yeah yeah, yeah. then um, like uh, one more thing i wanted to actually dig up on right uh, you brought it up saying about um, storytellers and how you're cautious about them so you know obviously one of the things uh, right now in the corporate world is how do you actually not just showcase numbers, but you tell the story of the numbers, right? That's what all the investors or that's what all the, you know, CEOs are, or the startup founders are trained to do. Like in terms of you are not going to just come and showcase that you got so much of uh, say traffic or you got acquisition and all that stuff and how it converts, but you are going to showcase What's a typical user journey? What is your, uh, you know, persona and your storytelling from uh, from someone's your consumer's journey? So how, uh, like, if a if a you know if a founder is really good at storytelling, how do you actually call that and how do you ask for the data behind it? Like, what is your typical scenario in in some of those cases? So I think one of the things we observe, I think we note down more carefully what the founder is talking about, especially when it's an edit. It is in terms of saying, you know, this is the kind of impact I'm having on let's say children and if it's an education product, or if this is the kind of impact it is having on customer, if it's a customer service product, uh, you know, this is what my clients tell me, mm-hmm. right? Uh, because one of the great things about very gifted storytellers is that they're able to bend the narrative, right? It's an arc and they tell you the journey. And at the end of the journey, you want to give them money. <laughs> That's the way it work, right? So what you have to really push yourself to do is to along the journey they are they are narrating anecdotes along the way that's mm-hmm. what great story talk about a customer facing a unique situation and they talk about a business solution and they'll give you an anecdote around it they'll talk about nps and give you an anecdote around it and they will tell you why this will you know become a million customers or a million people right and that's the journey right i think the trick is to take that anecdote you know, respect the anecdote and then go back and say whether the data supports it you know, uh, if you're saying that, you know, it is having so much impact on so many students, go back and check. Does it really have impact on students? What are those students saying? Right. And sometimes what it means is you may need to do many things. You may need to do customer research uh, uh, to find out whether, you know, whether what the founder is saying actually matches with what not one customer or two customers are saying, but thousand customers are saying. No, I'll give you an example. A company, maybe two years ago, where... The narrative was that you know, there is an X for tier one India. Mm-hmm. I am the X India, right? And X for tier one India is so big and so valuable and so many customers and so much revenue. I'm going to be the same X for tier two India, so many customers, blah, blah, blah. It is a fantastic narrative. And if it's true, then yes, you know, you can make a case of why you should make the investment in the second one because the first one is a success. But when we actually, when we went and, you know, did a market research with a thousand customers, we discovered that most of the customers for even for the second company were tier one. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. To the narrative, right, on what I think or what the founder believes the company can be. Or maybe it's a can be, but it's not true today. Yeah. Right. So like, he grossly you know, miscalculated the addressable market. Like, yeah. we just so, assumed that you will be think, the same thing tier two. 
questioning right and saying you know what 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 you're trying to be so i think it's it's that it's going back and looking at saying there's always a story and the story has a bunch of anecdotes translating those anecdotes into some data and then going and asking the question what is it today forget what is going to be tomorrow what is it today right and then you know, look at the data and then you can have a view you can say you know what based on the data today maybe it'll change and maybe it'll not change and that's okay yeah. i think that's very i think uh it's especially important in the indian context because i think some of the very successful founders in india are very poor storytellers uh and 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 i don't i don't know what what the situation in america is but in the indian context i can tell you some of the most successful business builders have been remarkably poor storytellers you can barely get a sentence out of them okay you know? so you are going to stereotype the other way now careful <laughs> so therefore uh, that doesn't mean of course that anybody who's not a good storyteller is going to build a good business so you have to go and you know of course you have to look at the data in both cases but yeah. but but you know it's usually it's hard it's easier to get convinced by a gifted storyteller it's harder to get convinced by a you know not so gifted storyteller so that's the thing in india so therefore we always there's also this cultural connotation where you don't necessarily uh, uh, and therefore you know you have to put that look at the anecdotes and look at the data and then and then find out whether it kind of that's the data ring and does it tell the story yeah. uh, what the and uh, uh, like one more thing i'll say you know um, uh, in in the book uh, they he talks about a lot about expert intuitions so you become now an expert so what is the expert intuition and when can you trust it like you know typically they the founders have this thing where they will probably get some advisor or some someone who is a subject matter experts who can vouch for the algorithm or vouch for what they have found or the patented technology right so what how do you judge those kind of pictures where there's like an overload of information an overload of biases from an expert and stuff and then you're like you know you have to see whether it is it's what you see is all there is or is there more <laughs> over here actually that's that is a very good statement from the book by the way what you see is all there is absolutely w uh, what you see is all there is it's a it's an excellent question and i don't have an answer for that I, i can tell you for sure that i'm not an expert in investing i think that's the first thing you realize <laughs> yeah. uh, i think it is uh i think it is easier to be or maybe i'm reading too much i think it is in the hard sciences the way i am now think about it is that the way expertise is defined in hard sciences and the way expertise ends up getting defined in soft sciences are very different mm-hmm. i think in hard, you know there is a when you say somebody is an expert and they really know one thing very very well i think it is easier they are much more narrower in the circumference around which they share their point of view and therefore it's easier to trust you know what uh, the data is telling or what their view is right i think in softer areas like i i think investing is certainly it's as much art as science as someone would call it you know in a very old fashioned way it's very hard uh, you know to be an expert also because it's a very funny business where you can look very right and then you look very wrong and then the same thing the other way around you can look very wrong and then you can look very right at the end of 10 years you know you could be wrong for 10 years investing <laughs> and then be right and tear and sometimes you're wondering uh, you know did you do the right thing by not benefiting from the opportunity or did you do the wrong thing uh, by waiting for it to all kind of pan out at the end right and uh, Uh, and there is always this famous question rhetorical question investing saying right look if you're in a bullet train and you know it's going to crash should you get into the train or not uh, uh, because there is always the temptation saying you know it's a rocket ship and I, can i get out in time and there are investors who, who are comfortable with doing that i think it's about uh, i would say it's less about expert intuition i think the way it is me and my partners have 
summarized it for ourselves is saying, look, there are many, many ways to invest. There is mm-hmm. one way which works for us. That's the area which we will spend all our time and energy in. And that's a pretty narrow way, right? We will only focus on India. Mm-hmm. We will only focus sectors where we have spent time over the last 15 years that we have some rudimentary understanding of sectors and those sectors are broad enough you know we have consumer brands financial services some parts of pharma some parts of software uh we do only 10 to 40 million you know we don't try to write the series a early check where there's no product market fit we're also not the late stage private equity slash buyout guys we don't do that we always back a founder we always take a minority position. And so it's almost like saying, hey, this course is for our, our, we are the horse for that course. Okay. Right. And in that, what you try to do is, yeah, you know, you try over a period of time, you try to see patterns and, you know, you realize some things work, some things don't work. But I would say that the area of genuine expertise is very narrow in okay. social science. The risk is that since I'm an investor, you can theoretically ask me any investing question and I can pontificate on Public markets, you know, Series A investing, buyouts, etc. But that's, but that's that's the problem of you know, yeah. I would say that's the problem of you know all of the stuff that we do, right? We we feel we are experts in. I think you can never be an expert in marketing, right? You can be an expert in marketing in a particular area in a particular type, right? And then maybe there you can share your share your thoughts and knowledge. Uh, but define expertise very narrowly, and therefore I think the Daniel Kahneman's skepticism around experts is something that resonated very well with me so therefore i also don't look at any forecasts uh, <laughs> uh, you know forecast uh, a lot of forecasting is just astrological really plans yeah. uh, are very good in all perfect conditions you know really people the reality is people really don't know that's yeah. the and uh, and that's what we tell even founders right i'm saying that the journey of building a company from a 10 million dollar business to a 150 million dollar business over let's say 8 10 years it's absolutely not going to be linear. It's going to be up and down. You're going to have meaningful setbacks. It's about just making sure that you're driving the ship reasonably during those, you know, and 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 when the waters are good, you press the accelerator button. And when the waters are bad, you be careful. But make sure the ship lasts. The key yeah. is to get there. The key is yeah. to make sure that you're there of 10 years, right? Uh, uh, that's reality. That's reality. Cool, thanks. Uh, so to close it out, what is, uh, obviously, we all know it's a very academical book and we've used it. So how what is how would you uh, tell the listeners in terms of if you want to get the best out of this book, what's the best way to kind of, you know, decision making comes with practice, right? You will have to keep rereading it or doing it again and again. So what is your your takeaway for someone to say that, hey, Go pick up this book and this is how you can use it in your decision making. What is What will be your main takeaway in that area? I would say two things about a book like this. One is uh, read it over a period of time. You don't, you don't have to be in a hurry at all. Read it slowly. Because the beautiful thing about this book is at the end of every chapter, you probably have something that you can take away and, and do something. That's one. Second is don't restrict it to big decisions or decisions around you know, investing or, you know, what you have to do in your job. I think the reality of the life is that you take a lot of decisions on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. And you look at the book and in, I think it becomes more interesting when you realize that this this is applicable to all the things that we do in life. Uh, 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 you know, our day-to-day life, the things that we tell, uh, complain about our children, uh, the disagreement that we have with our spouse. I think a lot of it, uh, uh, what I like about this book is that the, the tips are relevant not just for making great economic decisions or great decisions for life, but actually for just living a very productive life. 
So it's very personal. I don't think you should think of it as a, a very complex book meant for taking big decisions. I think you should think of it as a, a simple book that will help you make, just take better day-to-day -day decisions in personal life and in all parts of your life. And if you think about it like that, then what you'll realize very quickly is that you can read a single chapter and you'll realize that there is a lot coming out of it. And you can, I can, you can see and you can watch your whole day unfold in front of you. And you'll realize that, hey, you know what? Uh, you know, this is something where I showed, you know, system one thinking. You know, I, to me, a great example of system one response is when you and your spouse, uh, you know, get into an argument about something that is really silly. But the only reason the reptilian response overwhelms is because it reminds you of all the hundreds and thousands of times you've had the same fight over the last 15 years. And that's system one thinking, you know, because... You know, let's say, I don't know, a towel that was not kept in the towel hook, for example, and that causes an episode in the morning. It's really a system on response which makes you shout, right? You know, system two will tell you, hey, you know what, it's a towel. You can do it. You can gently tell the other person. And same thing with your children, right? Every time you get angry with your child, you realize that the violent nature of your response is often system on response. Uh, because if you think about that episode in its, in its individual capacity, it will be a very small thing. <laughs> And sometimes the child also wonders, you know, what happened? You know, why did the parent react so furiously to something that was, I don't know, maybe a pencil shave kept somewhere and not put in the, you know, dustbin or something like that. So I think the interesting thing to me about this book is that while it's, of course, a great book of economics and won a Nobel Prize, it's a very interesting book for life. And if you think about it like that, it's a lot of fun. You won't get bogged down and you won't think of it as an academic. Yeah, that's actually, that is one thing. And I think from what you said one more thing for me is if you start doing it in smaller things, smaller decisions, you will again do a pattern recognition. You will you will be able to understand how you think or how do you apply the rules, right? So the whole point of learning something is to practice it and, and starting small will be the best way to practice it, actually. Uh, enjoy it and you'll realize how wise he was. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, VT. I think it was an engaging discussion of the human mind, decision-making and the biases. Uh, listeners, do check out the book Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. I'm sure you'll learn a lot of answers about power of our mind and the various social experiments, anecdotes, and theories. Use your system one and two appropriately for decision making and avoid biases, anchoring efforts, the choices you make. I hope it is not about towel choices, but bigger choices in life. But at least you can start off with towels. Thank you. It was a great conversation. Thanks, Viti. Thank you.